So do you think if we if we feel ourselves going down the ignorance track, we should just stop to save some editing? Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's go then. Okay. I think you should introduce it this time. Okay. Welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast, episode three, with Flash apologist Ian Lobb. <laughs> and... And, I don't know, and troublemaker Seb Lee Delisle. <laughs> cool. So, what is up on today's episode? Well, we've got a very special guest, Jeff Thorpe. He's very well known for his very cool digital art. He's been the um, artist in residence at the New York Times for about six months. Um, we've got some updates just from what we've been up to and uh, previous stories that we've covered, kind of updates. So, should we start with the comments from last week? Yeah, why not? Okay, so Jim says, Seb has a sexy voice, especially when he says Zoom. Yeah, that's just only marginally <laughs> freaky. <laughs> but I guess all attention is good attention, it's, right? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. But um, you know Jim, right? So he's not really a freaky stalker or anything. I only know him on the internet, but he okay. seems like a good guy, so I don't think he is a freaky stalker. He has um, this crazy Julie... website, though, doesn't he? It's amazing, yeah. Um, with... Do you remember it off the top of your head? head um, no, I can't remember the address, but there's a weird cat with human lips. It's That's really good. Weird. We got caught out on the um, playbook stuff, and we got set straight by Julian Dolce, who's a friend of mine. He works for um, QNX, I believe. Who pointed out that you don't, you can make playbook apps in HTML using the WebWorks SDK? So it's not just Flashable. You can also build stuff with JavaScript. And apparently, there's a Java SDK coming soon, as Matthew Fab pointed out. Yeah, Java and C plus plus SDKs coming soon. Mm-hmm. So they got all bases covered, really, which is quite quite good with them, really. Be nice if Apple did a, a Java SDK, a Flash SDK. Be interesting to see <laughs> the difference between those apps, and you know whether there are any noticeable differences. Sure. B. Mandashai says, another great show. Uh, however, I think you did n- know in some way about the JS address bar thing. That's why we called JS from Action Script with href note. And I think I don't think that's right. But what it did remind me of is I think the uh, JavaScript in the address bar thing is how bookmarklets work. Okay. So that makes sense. And then you've just got a note here that there was much love for Kitten Conveyor Belt. Yeah, there were several people posting saying that they've played with it and they love it and stuff. So they're probably just sucking up to you, but fair enough. I don't mind that. That's fine. I renewed my developer license with Apple. I thought I'd quickly just check to see if there was much interesting coverage of Kitten Conveyor Belt on the internet. And I found a YouTube video by uh, eSimple Studios, who basically set up about eight or nine iPhones and iPads in a big long row and put Kitten Conveyor Belt on all of them and just to just make one massive long kitten conveyor belt. Does it look like one cat goes from one to the next one? No. <laughs> but it, it does look like a massive long conveyor belt, which is quite cool. That is cool. If the cats were in a predetermined order, you see, you could set one going and then the next one and the next one. If it's the first time you ever run the app on all the phones, then it would be all the same kitten. Right, so you start one. When you see it leaving the screen, start the next one. That it will is... appear to move on to that, and then the next one will also move I think, on. I think we've just set out a challenge to eSimple Studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. Yeah, come on, guys. Sort it out. But yeah, I thought oh, that, was, that was thoroughly amusing, and it made me really happy. <laughs> that's great. So I've got an update on Jangaroo, which we talked about in episode one. Mm-hmm. 
which is basically that I've got all my demos working now and you can check them out on my blog. Um, the link will be uh, on the web on our website. And uh, yeah, it works pretty good, really. Um, not all the demos kind of work at a brilliant frame rate, but there's definitely some good stuff in there. And Frank, who kind of works on Django, has been amazingly helpful. So, Have you yeah. changed your mind on it then? Because you seemed a little bit unsure. Well, well, I was just, I, I just thought it was more finished than it really was. So that's my bad, really, for assuming that it's a kind of ready-to-go project when really it's a kind of, um, you know, an in-development alpha project. For example, you know, Frank's added some extra features based on things in my Bunnies demo to make it work. Yeah. So it's got a way to go yet. But the more people, you know, get involved and, and pester Frank and start using it, the more kind of the quicker it will get updated, I suppose. So you see a use for it now? Well, it's, I mean, just the idea that you can write a, a JavaScript app in Flash and have one app that, that publishes to Flash and to, to HTML, I think is awesome. I mean, you may disagree. I can, <laughs> I've, I can see a sceptical look on your face. but um, I think if it works, it's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It would have to be in a very stable working state to be useful, basically. So, so the other fallout from last, last time, which we forgot to mention, is that we did a whole session, a whole podcast all about devices. And then the very next day, there was that huge announcement from Nokia regarding the Windows phone. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, the announcement was that uh, Nokia did this amazing kind of memo thing, which was called Standing on a Burning Platform, which was a, a great metaphor about, obviously their platform was symbian, but the metaphor was like some kind of oil platform or something, which is on fire and you have to jump in the sea. <laughs> and the sea in this case is Windows 7. <laughs> so it's great news for Windows 7 developers though, because, yeah. uh, you know, just it's going to be, especially in North America, it's just going to be, you know, get much, much bigger um, number of people using it really so that's going to help your your sales etc and also um i kind of got an email from their kind of newsletter which said that they are working on ie9 for windows phone 7 so it will html5 and all that good stuff will be coming in a future update so that's good great i noticed that another people picked up on this that nokia didn't mention windows phone 7 they only oh, really? mentioned windows phone so we're thinking it's not going to happen within this this release cycle of Windows Phone, or at least that's the, the sort of opinion that's been spread around. Oh, no, I don't believe that. Yeah. I mean, Windows Phone 7 will be around for the next five years. I can't see them replacing it. They're not just going to go, oh, that was all right. Here's Windows Phone 8. Yeah, why not? They're going to bring out a new one pretty soon, surely, this year. Later this year, I reckon. Who, Microsoft? Now? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're crazy. Yeah, why not? No, because it's like, it is a it is a platform It's a, in its own right. It's like saying that Apple are going to replace iOS. It's just a, a non... Well, no, it's the difference between iOS 3 and iOS 4, right? No, but it's not that kind of version number, is it? It might as well be called Windows Phone New. Yeah, no, I, that's... It's not that's... just an update to Windows Phone 6 or 6.5. It's yeah. a completely new thing. Yeah, well, what, 7 is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they, they reckon... They're starting again they're, from scratch. They, they reckon they're going, they're going to be making... I don't know who they is in this situation. I just read on the internet somewhere that someone believes that the new windows phone won't be called windows phone 8 it will have a new magic name and that nokia deliberately not mentioned windows phone 7 because they're going to wait until the new version's out i think we're wandering into ignorance corner at this point (laughs) that that sounds like a yeah that doesn't sound right to me but But we you know we live in ignorance corner it's it's so cozy (laughs) (laughs) should we should we should we do a fact check now I'm just going to see if I can find a press release from from Nokia that says Windows Phone 7, and that'll sell them. Oh, do you know what? I know, you might be right. 
That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I think you might be right, you know. There's something in that, anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, it's not an area that um, that we don't have any inside information or anything, but it's just a few rumours that have been circulating. Um, A couple of uh, Microsoft evangelists follow me on Twitter, so they might be able to to answer this in the comments, possibly. Yeah. They may not know themselves, though, so I don't want to stitch them up too much. (laughs) (laughs) They might not be able to say, I expect. Yeah. Oh, and the yeah. other the other thing that we should mention is yesterday's announcement of the Flash. <laughs> Are you gonna really gonna do this charade? Yeah, we're gonna do this charade of of saying that yesterday at the Flash Gaming <laughs> Summit in San Francisco, Adobe announced the public beta for Flash Molehill, the hardware accelerated graphics API. And I have an extra special surprise in that I invited uh, Thibaut Amber, the Flash Player product manager, to come on our podcast to talk about it. Oh, did you? Yeah, but he ignored me. So so we'll we'll maybe skip that this time. Right, okay. Yeah, I do have a a thing about uh, Molehill, which I wanted to talk about, really, which is just to do with uh, the news that Scaleform um, were acquired by or will be acquired by Autodesk. So, so first off, we should probably just quickly explain what Molehill is. Oh, yeah, okay. And Sorry, then we yeah. should probably explain what Scaleform is. Scaleform is, yeah. <laughs> okay, so well, you can say what Molehill is because you know better than me. Okay, well, Molehill is, is the code name for the new uh, ability in, in, the, in a, a yet-to-be-released Flash player that gives you access to hardware-accelerated graphics draw calls like built on the graphics hardware of your computer so finally you'll be able to get uh, hardware accelerated graphics in the flash player just in a sort of in the similar way that webgl does yeah and it's all going to be done through low level action script calls yeah so it's than... i think a common misconception with probably molehill and uh, webgl is that it's a 3d library and that you can just put models in and stuff but of course that's not really true it just gives you low level access to the hardware graphics um, API and you still need a a 3D engine to work out where the triangles are and do the shaders and all of that kind of thing with molehill you'll need um, a molehill um, enabled software renderer like away 3D or alternativa and just no not not software renderer no not a software renderer but an action script library that works out a lot of the stuff yeah so it's not it's actually the just the rendering part that is hardware accelerated is none of the other stuff Um, and the same with with WebGL you'll need a library like 3.js to manage 3D models and loading. Sure. But, but things like, um, you know, sorting triangles is, is done on the GPU anyway, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, so Adobe have left it basically to the open source guys, again, as we did in the kind of paper vision generation, yeah. to come up with the actual software, essentially. <laughs> to... Yeah, but, you know, this is, we've been on at them to give us hardware accelerated graphics for ages now, right? So at least they're finally getting it sorted. Oh, my goodness, there's some building going on upstairs, I think. I oh, just... no. So, I mean, for me, this has kind of opened up another realisation, basically, which is that, uh, well, going back to Scaleform, what's, what Scaleform is, is Scaleform lets you uh, kind of run a version of the Flash Player that they develop uh, inside, for example, Unreal Engine or a game engine. And so then you can build your UIs for games in Flash and then just add that Flash layer in, into 3D. Uh, in your game but the kind of implications of this technology because the way it works is quite clever that it rather than kind of being a vector renderer it turns your vector graphics into kind of a mesh of triangles using tessellation and then it can put those triangles on the gpu and then that's very fast so the upshot of that then is that 
you could use it to just make a hardware accelerated 2D flash player, which is basically what they've done in, in a video that you can see online that we'll post. There's a really nice example of flash running very, very fast on an iPad, um, but just, you know, browsing through widgets and photos and things like that. So that made me think, well, why isn't this technology actually in the web player for Flash. And as I was thinking that, it was announced that uh, Autodesk, who make 3D Max and Maya, uh, have bought uh, Scaleform. So now that any chance of Adobe acquiring them then integrating that technology is basically gone at this point. Um, which kind of made me a bit annoyed because, you know, there were a couple of years ago, Adobe paid something like a billion dollars for a, an analytic company. But, yeah. you know, they weren't, they weren't prepared to shell out 30 notes for uh, <laughs> something that potentially could have made the Flash player amazing. So That's very true. I mean, I think that you have to remember that Adobe's focus are these kind of corporate enterprise style solutions and, and actually Flash player probably probably doesn't make them very much money so although of, of course to you and I it's like a, and a complete no-brainer that an, a hardware accelerated flash vector renderer is a really good idea I think it would probably at their end be quite difficult to justify its business case depressingly well I just I think they'll end up there anyway and whether it's now or in five years I guess is the question because what do people complain about about flash you know rendering feed they say it kills their CPU and stuff yeah you know? 90% of the, of the PCs, uh, you know, the devices even, mobile devices as well, that Flash Play is running on, are going to have a GPU that could handle all this stuff much faster. And so, you know, they could resolve that problem potentially. But In, At the risk of, of heading straight into ignorance corner again, I'm pretty sure that the, the mobile Flash Player does actually use the GPU for vector rendering, doesn't it? I mean, it's really not fast. In the, not in the same way as Scaleform. Yeah. It is, it's, it's nothing like it, no. I mean, I know that the mobile Flash Player definitely uses the GPU for rendering bitmaps, but I... I would assume, I mean, it runs so fast that I would assume it's using No, the that's GPU. just because the, the devices you're looking at, like if you're looking at it on an Android, it's got a one gigahertz GPU anyway, so that's faster than the computer that I used to use when I started making Flash stuff. Well, I'm sure we'll get, uh, that's why we need Tebow here, right? Where is he? He's nowhere, because we could ask him this stuff. Um, but I do think that, that Scaleform is, is an interesting technology, and I think I'd like to know a bit more about it. But it's, I think we need to move on because uh, we've, we should introduce Jer because it's time to get him in. Oh, okay. Um, so I should just say, you know, I've known Jer for quite a few years now. I've met him, I think, at Flash Forward about 06, something like that. I'm really losing my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Last call for coughs. Um, I think I met him in 06 at Flash Forward and he was at the time doing a lot of really cool Flash work. He was the first person that uh, really explained to me what genetic algorithms were and he did some amazing stuff. So he did the smart rockets thing, I think you might have seen it, where there's all these rockets at the bottom of the screen and they have like a random genetic code which dictates where their jets are and which angle and how frequently and what pulses they fire in. So they all fire off up into the air in random directions and crash into stuff. But the ones that get closest to the target then uh, breed a whole new um, family of rockets that are a bit closer to, to the target. And and it really opened my eyes. I think genetic programming is amazing. So powerful. Mm. Um, Have you seen a website called Boxcar2D? No. It is brilliant. It is a kind of... Uh, it kind of generates... Uh, different cars in box 2d with different sized wheels and shaped bodies gets them to drive down a bumpy track and then it kind of breeds them based on their performance it's really awesome it's really a great a great thing that sounds great i definitely recommend that you look into more genetic algorithm stuff if you never tried it i think it's really good fun 
so then he uh he moved into away from flash and moved into processing and then i saw him doing some really cool data viz on stuff like he, he invented this stock market of colors where they all traded their colors and they're all uh, rendered as pixels and and that was pretty cool and then i saw his stuff with you might have seen the twitter thing just landed where he'll scrape twitter for anyone that says just landed you know which you always do right when you land in a foreign country just landed in new york look how cool i am and he'll take that and then see where you live and draw a line on the map from where you live to new york and so he had some really cool viz on that um but just generally he does a lot of political stuff as well like uh, in the, over the last year or so he's been looking at the new york times word frequency relating to various politicians but i'm sure we'll talk to him about that a bit more so should we get him in yep i don't know how to do that <laughs> <laughs> oh there he is uh let's see if we can add him oh wow what the hell? Can you hear that? Oh, no, yeah, I can. I could probably just call my neighbour. This is terrible. <laughs> hey. Hey. How are you doing? Are you recording in uh, in QuickTime then, Jeff? I am as of right now. I realised after I said, yes, I'll do this, that I have actually no idea what your podcast is about. What, the pod? You mean you haven't listened to <laughs> our podcast? I didn't listen to the first one. Oh, no. I know. It's tragic. I, I was hoping maybe. In, yeah. I was hoping on my subway ride that I would find in that find out that it was about gardening or something. Well, well, we're gonna skip. We'll cut all this bit out, and then you can just say how much you love the podcast. Oh, I love the podcast. <laughs> okay, let's do it. So um, let's bring in our special guest, Jer Thorpe. Hi. Hi, Jer. <laughs> Hello. Jer, uh, you're in New York, right? Yeah, I am. I'm. I'm in the uh, New York Times building. Are you still working for them? I am, yeah. No, no, I just snuck in. <laughs> I thought, so... <laughs> you just broke in. Yeah, that's right. Like, oh, okay, good. And and so what have you been doing there? We've been working on this really big uh, data visualization project since September, and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully it will see the light of day probably next week. Is it a secret? It's It's kind of a secret. It hasn't been shown a lot. I've shown a, a few pieces of it, um, but nobody has seen the real thing outside of this building. So we can't talk about it. Oh, we can talk about it. Okay. I just can't show can't show you pictures of it. All right, just share. Um, so what we're looking at is how Times content gets shared over social space. So mainly Twitter in this iteration, although it could be um, Facebook or or notes passed by hand or whatever the social network might be, <laughs> but. Uh, Essentially, we're, we're looking really closely at the structures that underlie sharing and how sharing happens in a time-based way. Cool. It, it, it's pretty. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> so I suppose we should have thought some questions, really. Well, we? <laughs> I mean, I think we, we've not really talked much about processing, so I'm probably the person with the least kind of experience of processing. So if I just say what I think it is, then you guys can like correct me. I like it. Where I'm wrong. It's good. I like that. So too. so from what I know about processing, it's based on Java. It's got its own language which is called processing script. Um it's uh, <laughs> it's just called yeah. processing. It's just yeah. called other oh, language is called processing. Yeah. yeah. Uh and it's a kind of dynamic language. Yes. Uh, so it is oh. Uh, oh I'll leave you guys to talk for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so processing is, it is Java essentially, but um, it's a, a clever layer that sits on top of Java that allows people to avoid the um, 
really irritating parts of Java. You know, Java being quite a strict language relies on, on a lot of structures that are confusing for people who are learning to program. So processing gets rid of all of that. And uh, is it kind of object-oriented, or do you just write like one script file and that's all your logic? Or So you, you have an option. So you can build things um, procedurally really easily, or you could just write classes the same way you would in Java. So one of the good things about the way that processing works is that uh, you always have access to Java under the hood. Sure. And then, uh, so do you have the option to write to write processing in Java if you want to? I mean, the distinction is is not really there. Like processing is Java, so you can write Java in line. The the, oh, right. the difference is when when you're building a processing sketch. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that make it a lot easier to create a Java app. Right. And then and where do things like toxic lib and all that stuff fit in? Right. So processing has a set of standard libraries that come with processing. And then, of course, there's dozens and dozens of user contributed libraries. So toxic libs being one of them, maybe the best of them. Right. And then what kind of applications would you would you use processing for? I think that's one of the best parts about processing is that it, it can output to so many places and forms. Like we see people using processing to create physical objects. Of course, um, processing talks to Arduino. So we see processing involved with electronics a lot. At the same time, there's a lot of uh, projection based work, a lot of screen based work, um, some some print work. So you know, because it's Java and because Java is so flexible, we can really build almost anything with it. Right. So in terms of distribution, it's not really a web technology, but it's everything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in the way that Java isn't a web technology, I mean, you can embed Java in the web. It's just not as seamless and pretty as we come to expect. Sure. I, mean, I think I think it's also important to point out there's a really strong processing community of artists, right? Yeah, it's a really big um, community. Processing, 10 years, 10 years in, in August, processing will wow. have been around. So a lot of students are learning processing at art school and in design school. So there's a, there's a really big community and it's still growing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, right? But whereas there are a lot of artists using Flash and that was very cool for a while, lots of those have sort of moved to processing because it's a bit more flexible, isn't it, in terms of the, the delivery mechanisms? Yeah, I think in my case, I, I was working at ActionScript, but I was, this was kind of in the trough of ActionScript where, where it was really, really slow. And yeah. and uh, I was building these kind of particle systems and, and with I wanted more than 15 things on the screen before <laughs> before it started to slow down and so i i moved to processing which was you know so liberating it was like let's take the same code we were using that was choking with 20 particles and and do like 2000 or 20,000 or so on and and did you just start like playing with it then or did you have a specific project to do or is it just experimental oh man i'm trying to remember <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kinda, you just wanted more particles, basically, yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. you? I got led down the processing uh, garden path by Robert Hodgen, uh, yeah. who, who was doing some pretty amazing work in processing. And, and he kept on saying, uh, hey, why aren't you using processing? Why aren't you using processing? And, and then eventually I, I, I thought that might be a good idea. So uh, Is he now saying, why aren't you using Cinder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, you know, Cinder evolved for um, Robert because he keeps on getting more and more and more complex with the things that he's it's doing. Right? True. Like eventually yeah, yeah. he's going to have to commission somebody to make a supercomputer for him. 
<laughs> because because like anything you could buy wouldn't be good enough. Uh, I did have a question actually, which is why would you choose processing these days rather than something like Open Frameworks or right or uh, Cinder? Uh, you know, I always think that's an interesting question. It's like if you were a musician and you would say, why would you ever choose to play the guitar when there's a piano? No, the, sure, the, the, they do different they do different things, and and one of the things about processing that's so nice is that it's quick to make projects. It's simple. There's the libraries all work the way that they should work, and so for me, it's it's the easiest possible, the fastest possible way for me to get an idea into something that works. Uh, I've used Open Frameworks, and I you know I love the project, and I love I love the idea of it, but I just find the overhead as he dampening to my creative process. When when I use, uh, I've been working in processing a few times over the last year or two, and uh, I really do love that you just have to load the idea. You know, you just load processing, you just download it and run it, and you're there. You're just up and running. It's got its own code editor, albeit rather simple, but that's fine. You know, you just start coding straight away, and it's that's really nice. When we're sort of used to as coders, like setting up the IDE or Eclipse or Xcode or whatever it is. You know, to be able to just get in and start is really cool, isn't it? Yeah, I do a lot of teaching with processing, and for me, it's it's so nice to be able to in the first class say. Uh, in 30 minutes, we will have built our first computer program. Not only that, it won't be a Hello World program. It'll be an interactive drawing tool. Brilliant. There, there's something really rewarding about that. Whereas uh, Open Frameworks, you know, just by the nature of it, there's, there's a lot more overhead that people have to learn before they can get something working. I did find quite quickly that I think sort of ran up against processing's performance limitations certainly on the on the 2d renderers and then of course you move to the OpenGL renderer and it's at that point that things you know for me at least it seemed to get a lot more complicated it was like you know processing it was no longer that seamless the connection between the renderer and processing and I felt like I needed to know a lot more about what was going on under the hood Right. And I, I'm not sure that there is an easy solution to that right now, like to do, do GPU-centric graphics easily. Um, but there's a new uh, core OpenGL library that Andres Calibri is developing right now, which should be released in the next couple of months, which will replace the existing uh, OpenGL renderer in processing and will make everything, I think, both faster and easier. That's great. That sounds cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean... It's funny. I think we're we're in this we're in this area of just exceeding complexity with with computational art right now, and I think that's good. And it's it's fun to push in that direction. But I also think that some of the most interesting work coming out is work that it kind of embraces simplicity again. And and processing is a nice place to be able to explore those types of ideas. You know, not every project needs to be a computer vision project. Yeah, of course. We like to play with the newest toys. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> uh, it's like, how many Connect projects are we going to see <laughs> in the next year? Which I think is is great. But it's really fun, isn't it? And really cool. But a lot of times, I see stuff that you could just do with simple background removal. Yeah, exactly. And and I think people are trying to, which is, which I think is important. But they're trying to apply the sort of gestural paradigm to everything. <laughs> And of course, as um, as as when they were making um, 
that the Tom Cruise film. What's that? I always forget the name. Minority, Minority Report. Report. Yeah, let's yeah. just wipe that out. Yeah, start yeah. again. Um, when they were making Minority Report, he always complained he had really sore arms at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Because it's a very unnatural thing to just move your arms around in the air. It's it's funny that you mentioned Minority Report because <laughs> I think that our, our entire industry for the last however seven years or however long has just been chasing that film. <laughs> yeah, and then of course it's like, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. that's not really a very nice interface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but maybe we'll all get buff. <laughs> we'll have really good biceps. Right. Be the first time that geeks will have muscles. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I'd like to talk, I think this is something that Ian wanted to talk about as well a bit, but really kind of the creative code process. I think that's a really interesting area. You know, what is this sort of creative process? What, what's it good for? And how do you get into that sort of state? You know, it's not really like programming an application anymore, is it? It's experimental, more like art. What, what does that mean to you? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was really thinking about, um, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, about, you know, because this is the creative coding podcast, but we've never really kind of defined what creative coding is. And so, Rightly I mean, so, probably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe the best way to think about it is in terms of it's it's the opposite of something where you're programming and you don't feel like you're being creative. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would argue that any good coding is creative coding. Yeah, and and that um, that's the exciting part, and that's the reason why we all like to program is that that creative moment of it, and and. You know, we we have an association with with the word creative to sort of mean 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 uh, abstract and and loose, but you know you can certainly be creative in the architecture of code, and you can be creative about the way you're approaching problems. And I think that's I, I mean I'm, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but that's the thing that makes programming exciting. But then you're not exactly making apps that you know you're not making an enterprise app or a, or an application that needs to run and be reliable and user friendly. You know your yeah. work is much more experimental. Isn't it? Yeah, it tends to be. And and if you were gonna if you're gonna break things down into sort of a, a creative phase and a prototyping phase and then a production phase, the the, the reality of it when I was when I was working as a, a a developer was that I would always get exceedingly bored after the prototype phase. Yeah. So maybe maybe a reason why I, I like the kind of work that I do is that I can I can only take it to the prototype phase and then be like, oh, it's done, <laughs> it's art. <laughs> I, I totally feel that as well, you know. But uh, I think client, client projects are really hard, aren't they? There's just like this this 10% of cool stuff and this 90% of whatever that is. Yeah, right. Finishing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. The, problem with, the problem with any bit of client work is there's always a portion of it, and it's normally quite a big portion, which is things that you're not interested in, are just requirements. Right. So it might be, you know, like some kind of accessibility thing or it might right. be some kind of, it has to integrate with their website or it might be, you know, right. they've got a particular hardware setup that you have to work with which is obviously not what's fun at all yeah i mean there there are people for which that is fun you know for for which those really exacting tasks and and that require rigor are 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 very rewarding but (laughs) i'm not one of those people (laughs) i think we need to meet some more of those people yeah yeah This idea of, of creative coding, you know, if we were to separate that from, from this greater um, idea of programming, then maybe maybe it's that because what you're doing is is there's no predetermined result. So yeah. you don't we don't really sit down with a deliverable, quote unquote. We, we we sit down with an idea and then that idea becomes something which usually doesn't resemble the, what it started as. And and often in in the world that I have been existing is 
these things start with a proposal. So there's a proposal that's made for an artwork or, or something, and, and uh, you try to earnestly pretend that that's what it's going to end up being, but in reality, it ends up being something vastly different. So you've been doing a lot of work with the, the New York Times API, right? I have done a lot of work with the Times API. Actually, the work that I've been doing here, though, what, now that I am at the New York Times, <laughs> is not specifically using the API. So that we do we do use them. Um, this project we sort of started from scratch. So I'm working with a, a really brilliant statistician and artist named Mark Hansen, and Mark has put together this system which kind of lives be- behind my uh, visualization tool, and that system was built from scratch using uh, uh, Mongo and and Python and R in the development of it. And, uh, you know, so you did all these New York Times API stuff and then that's how they you got their attention. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what happened is I, through that work with the, with the Times APIs, I started talking to some people from the R&D group. So Nick Bilton, who was in the R&D group at the time, and, and Mike Young, who was in the R&D group at the time. Um, we sort of became friends. And then, and then when I came to New York for my six-week residency at Columbia University, they uh, brought me in for a meeting about this project, and I thought it was really exciting. And, and uh, then I, I jumped on board. I'm quite interested to talk about the, the, the sort of transition you've made, because as far as I understand, it used to be just like a, a flash coder for hire, right? Yeah, so it's somewhere on the borderline between design and development, but but mostly mostly action script work. So you know, I started with Flash in the in the winter of 1998, <laughs> and and uh, I did Flash work pretty much. That's all I did until uh, 2007 or so. Mm. And what sort of work were you doing then? Oh man, <laughs> I'm embarrassed <laughs> to talk about. It. No, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I guess a lot of it was. Why do you think I asked you? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it was to see their typical. Um, I never did any really huge projects, but I would. I did. You know, I did mini sites for for major league soccer league, and well, that's what we call football over here uh, um, <laughs> in in the states. And I I did some work for like the Honda Canada site, and but you know mostly through agencies. So I would work for agencies, and then they would work for these clients. I didn't tend to do a lot of direct client work. And you did banners. I did do some banners. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all done so it. I think kind of banners, you know, that's part of the creative coding domain, isn't it? Sometimes. I've done some banners that had quite quite interesting you yeah. know, creatives behind them. <laughs> these, these ones weren't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so how did you get out of that? Was that like a conscious decision to move into something else? Or was it, you know, was it organic? What, what happened? Well, what happened is in about two, maybe 2000, I started my own uh, personal site. And the reason why I did that is because I really didn't know what I was doing in my job. So I, I would have to bluff my way through my days. And then I would come home in the evenings and try to learn the things that I pretended to know during the day. <laughs> and um, We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I really love doing that work, these kind of small, creative, experimental things. And I, and I grew to really not like the work that I was doing during the day. So I, I reached a point where I, where I really thought I was going to quit. You know, I had all these um, new career ideas that I was thinking about. And, and uh, eventually I, I kind of made a decision to say, you know what, I'm just going to do the stuff that I like and just accept the fact that I probably won't get paid for it. 
And, and then what happened is that as soon as I started doing more of the stuff that I like, then people started to see me as somebody who does that stuff rather than the boring stuff I was doing before. And, and uh, I got way more emails and, 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 and the interesting projects. So I had ended up, you know, this kind of resignation to um, living in a cardboard box and, and doing, doing the work that I like turned out a lot better than I ever could have expected. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, I think that, I think me and Sam have talked about this before, but there's a kind of idea of like, wh- whatever you want to be, just be it right. first and, and don't wait for someone to pay you for it. Yeah. And then eventually it, it'll come. Do you think that will work for anyone? Well, I mean, that, that's how I became a games developer rather than being a Flash developer who will take any type of project. Yeah. You know, when I started my blog, I called it Ian Lobb on creating Flash games. Right. And and then, you know, that, you know, it, it changes the perception of you or whatever. And then now I, you know, I almost entirely get approached about games work as opposed to other kind of work. Yeah. And we live in a world now where it's just vastly more possible to do that than it was even 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Like, yeah. you know, to make a film 10 years ago was still a, quite an undertaking, whereas now we can we can all go buy a camera for a fairly low amount at the store that will we'll film a pretty good quality movie. And and in our business, there is, there's no overhead. You know, there's no overhead to start building interesting things and start coding interesting things. It's free. And there's ready-made delivery platforms for that, isn't there? Along with, you know, of course there's Vimeo and YouTube, but Twitter nowadays seems to be just a pretty amazing way to get your stuff out there. Right. Yeah, I tell my tell my students sometimes sometimes in the programs that I teach in, people are still fixated on this uh, portfolio idea you know, that they have to leave school with a portfolio. But I think that the way it works now is that you make something interesting and and it sort of catches fire, and next thing you know, people know you for that project, and then you can have the avenue to do more things like it. Is that is that different from having a portfolio though? Well, different in the way that the 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 way that these students are being told that it happens is that you leave school and then you have a meeting with an art director and the art director looks at your portfolio and says this is great work. We would like to hire you. Um, right. Whereas I think the way that that it happens now is is different where you you produce work that gets released onto the web and and through that work people are approaching you. I guess having some kind of a profile online is probably as important as having a portfolio now. Yeah, but I, I think it's so, it's so um, individually centered on these projects. Like we know people more by their projects now. Right. Yeah. Like one, maybe most people are known for one project. Yeah. Exactly. And and I always think that if. Um, you know, if you're a student and, and you're getting to that stage where you're going to be finished school, it probably makes sense to commit your time to one really great project rather than trying to put together a portfolio showing that you can do a lot of different things. I think, and that's really, that's something really cool about the internet as well, isn't it? It's like, if you just have one cool project, have it on a video somewhere. Mm. And, you know, if it's, I, I found like with a couple of my projects, like Make Magazine picked it up and instantly you have 10,000 hits on your website. Yeah. You know? I mean, the fact that can happen is pretty remarkable well it's funny i mean sab you and i both come from a music background and <laughs> and i remember you know the days when i was playing in a band and this was before the internet was such an important thing for independent bands i mean yeah. we would be so happy if like hundreds of people saw us play yeah yeah or or, or heaven forbid thousands and and, <laughs> and uh now you can make something and post it to vimeo and and have fifty thousand or a hundred thousand views or or more 
yeah. and that to me it's just amazing i mean i find i do find that really exciting and uh, although i do have to constantly remind myself that it's kind of it's not like the same as having 150,000 people at your gig oh yeah it's kind of it's kind of micro attention yeah it is <laughs> It's like they're yeah, it's walking like, by you and you're playing. Yeah, it's like 50,000 people just walk past and look up. Right, yeah. And carry on walking. Yeah. <laughs> Except that's what happened at most of my shows too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is, is music though one area where this actually kind of doesn't apply? Like, it's quite hard to be viral with music. I, I disagree, uh, actually. I don't know um, if that's true. Like, yeah, okay, go, I right? Mean, yeah, there's obviously the OK Go stuff. And, oh, but, that, I mean, yeah, but that's a video, though, isn't it? They're, they're famous for a video, I guess is my point. Yeah, but I think these days, you know, if you are... Um, but then the fact that there's a video is, is really a really strong point. I'm always going on about Pomplamoose, who are a, an independent duo in San Francisco. And I first discovered them, I don't know, a couple of years ago, because I was doing this big presentation about my music career. And didn't we have it really hard in the 90s, you know, when we had to book studios and now we just have to get our, our little flip cam and... Uh, our garage band and we can right. make our own our own video and that's essentially what Pomplamoose do um but what they do is i mean they do these video songs where they just video themselves recording the song and of course it's totally charming and they're very talented but the way they drove traffic to that would be to make a cover version of like a lady gaga song or a michael jackson song or whatever right. and that would bring the people in and yeah. then they i mean the, the web is a visual medium right and that's yeah. why a band like Pomplamoose would do well on the web because they have visual every song yeah hmm. Whereas but, if you're, if, do you know what I mean? If you're literally just, you know, doing some earnest recording of your singer-songwriter ballad and yeah. you put the MP3 and go, listen to this, that's not going to go viral. You need no. to have some stunt or something. But I think that's, it, right? that's always been true with music marketing. Yeah, I think because, so I mean, how often have you seen a, have you heard a band's song and thought, oh, that's all right. And then you've seen well, them and you've yeah, been like, wow, it's really radio. good. That's, that's called the radio, though, Seb. Like, lots. You would put on the John Peel show and you would hear like 20 cool songs by bands you've never heard, right? I'd hear like 19 really unlistenable cacophonic <laughs> messes <laughs> no the point is though that the visuals you cannot separate visuals from audio right they're inextricably linked like how mm. many times have you heard something on the radio liked it then seen them on the telly and, and hated them yeah <laughs> and then you can't listen to it anymore that's right it's like if our podcast listeners could see what we look like <laughs> <laughs> they would immediately uh forget about us didn't, didn't you have a, a bit of a style makeover recently, Jer? Uh, it was a temporary one. Was it? It yeah. was just a, a, a minor it was, lack it, of it facial hair. Back. Yeah. You back to full <laughs> facial hair yeah. again. Well, I live in Brooklyn, right? So I have to I have to have a beard in order to cross the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> there's a checkpoint. Check Do you live in... What's the, what's the kind of trendy neighbourhood at the moment? Do you live in that one? Dumbo. I live in Dumbo, no, Dumbo. Which, is, um, yeah. which is kind of a... It's a it's a dot com uh, office warehouse area. Uh, it's big a strange neighborhood. There. Yeah, yeah. Big spaceship is there, and Etsy what? is there. And which uh, which Pop trendy Jack. area were you thinking of, Ian? You were thinking I think it's around there. It, oh yeah, Williamsburg. Williamsburg that's yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I don't live in Williamsburg. I'm too old. They, I, I didn't pass the age test. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, you yeah. must be at least young, this young to get on this ride. And <laughs> it did work. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I think we should start to think about wrapping up. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could uh, I could talk all day. But... Yeah, well, we, we all could. And, <laughs> and trust me, it's been difficult editing the last couple of episodes <laughs> down to something that's listenable. Um, but yeah, you've got some stuff coming up, Jay. You've got some training courses, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm running my processing workshops out of my studio in Dambo. They're small. There's like seven people in each one. It's really fun. So if people are in New York or want to come to New York, they can go to my website and look at the schedule. Yeah, and we'll put links on the uh, on the webpage. I'm definitely up for one of those. I'm going to be in New York later this year, so right, just uh, make sure you you set one up while I'm there. Really. <laughs> I will. I'll save you a seat. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay. Any, you you got anything coming up, Ian? Uh, not really. I've started updating the um, the extended play blog with kind of news of things that are happening down in the southwest. So that's, oh, that's xplay.tumblr.com. And that's your uh, your thing based in like Devon and Cornwall, right? Yeah, it's a games meetup, but I thought I would use the uh, the blog to kind of stick anything kind of geek geek related on there that people might be interested in. So, Are you, uh, and uh, Jer, have you got any conferences coming up? Well, I'll be in the UK in May uh, for Thinking Digital, and then at at the end of March uh, in New York, there's a conference called uh, Geeky by Nature, which is going to be good. oh yeah, that's John Davies' conference. That's right. So there's that, and then in May there's Thinking Digital, and then in June, of course, IO Festival, which is going to be amazing. Already sold out. Sold out in six days. Yeah, that's incredible. And you're you're you've got something to do with running that, don't you? Um, I can't take too much credit. It's Dave Schroeder who runs the show, but uh, yeah. I've been helping curate content which has been really fun brilliant yeah i'm really looking forward to that i'm, I'm gonna be there which is fantastic um i got some stuff coming up some more creative javascript courses at flash uh, fitc and south by southwest i've got a two and a half hour long workshop for 500 people wow bit different wow. from yours Jay. Yeah. i think i prefer i think i'd prefer seven <laughs> but you know um, oh, do you want to talk about how your one your one went in brighton oh yeah yeah no it went really well i think i've kind of uh, i've been adjusting the parameters and i think i've hit on a good formula for these two day uh, creative javascript courses so what's the secret the secret is like no more than 12 people um or 500 do it on sorry or 500, or 500. Yeah. yeah 12 ideally 500 if <laughs> south by southwest make you um, <laughs> um run it on a thursday and friday as well that we're, we're gonna trade seb i want to take your workshop and you can take mine Oh, well, that sounds like a great deal. Um, so, yeah, I also ran it on a Thursday and Friday, so everyone was a bit more uh, relaxed by the end of the week, and they could carry on experimenting over the weekend. So we had a creative JS hashtag on Twitter, and there's lots of sharing and talking and continuing to play on that. So that was really cool. Plus, I just added, like, sections where there were just there was some time to absorb what we'd, we'd talked about and experiment with new stuff. I, I made myself spend an hour at the end of the second day just saying you know now do whatever you want and that was really really cool so yeah i feel like i'm getting the hang of that one that's pretty good yeah sounds great yeah cool okay well let's let's wrap it up then uh, if there's nothing else to say oh. uh, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much jeff for joining us it's been brilliant yeah thanks guys it was really fun thanks dude yeah cheers yeah and i guess we'll see you on the next creative coding podcast great bye bye, bye. I'm particularly kind of awake right now. It got better. And well, you're you're and you're young today, Seb. Oh, nice. No, you're going to be old tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow's just my birthday. So today you're young. Tomorrow old. It's Thirty-nine tomorrow. Right, yeah. could, next how many, year. How many is that now, Seb? Huh? 
how many 39s does that have? <laughs> If I was going to lie about my age, it wouldn't be 39. <laughs> oh yeah, i got to remember to stop recording, otherwise I'm going to have my whole, my whole day recording.